Good morning, church. Thanks for being here with us today. Uh, my name is Rodney. I'm one of the pastors here, and I just wanted to thank you uh, for being here with us, but specifically being here with us on this Sunday that kind of feels like, uh, maybe like almost feels like our first winter Sunday, which coincidentally happens to be the Sunday that our furnace kind of like gave out on us this morning. So I just want to clarify that we are a frugal church plant, but we're not that cheap. This was not intentional. This is not normal setting. Uh, so thankfully, we got some good guys who are on top of that. Uh, I did want to give just a couple notes to the announcements that were shared today. One, Brandon had mentioned uh, connecting with Alex. If you're not a part of a family group, our family groups gather this week. Um, I hadn't told Brandon this, so I wanted to just make clear. We do have these new cards that are on our connection table. They say ready to join a family group, and they give you contact information for how to connect with Alex. So if you want to learn more about that, grab one of those cards today, and he'll be able to help you out this week. I also just wanted to um, clarify, Brandon made the announcement about our, our upcoming youth preview night. So uh, we are a church that um, all of a sudden the need to think about youth ministry has come upon us pretty quickly. Um, by God's grace, our church body has more than doubled this past year. And um, out of the roughly 100 people that make up Rooted Church, over a third of those are kids. Uh, praise be to God. I think our church has grown by 10% just with new babies this year. And so we want to think intentionally about how we serve those kiddos. Um, we don't intend to do youth ministry in the traditional sense. You're not going to see new graphics for Ignite student ministries or anything crazy like that. Uh, but we, we, we want our kids to be a part of our family groups and to be discipled on Sunday morning the same way we want everybody to. We're one church. But we also recognize there is benefit when people of like age and like life circumstance can get together to talk about the word. And so our youth nights next semester, they're going to be twice a month, and we're, they're going to do the exact same things we're doing in our DNA group. They're going to come together to discover, nurture, and act on God's word, to learn how to read the Bible and to make studying the Bible an important part of their lives. And we've got three great uh, Ozark students, um, Jack, Blake, and Gabe, who have come to us specifically to help with that. And on December 5th, we're going to come together from 5 to 7, youths from 9 to 18 years old, um, just to kind of get a preview of what that's going to look like next year. So on December 5th, if you have a student between 9 and 18 who you'd like to come and just see what's going on, um, that'll be a night to come and do that, as well as to meet those guys. And parents are welcome to hang around, too, and see what's happening. So, um, and then with that also, same lines, uh, youth-wise, Brandon asked me to share this. Um, with the increased number of kids, we're also trying to kind of shore up how we do things in Little Sprouts downstairs. Um, so starting this Sunday, we're going to ask that if you have a kid in Little Sprouts, that you not only check them in at the gate, but that you also meet them at the gate to check them out. Our Little Sprouts ministry has changed here recently to where all of a sudden there are kids who, if you're teaching down there, you have no idea who their parents are. And so uh, we've got a great team, Liz and Brandon and Jenna, uh, have worked together, and one of the things they've identified is, is for the safety of our kiddos, and just so everybody feels confident, we want to have a better check-in process. So today, when you go get your kids from Sprouts, if you could go down to the gate and actually sign them out, that would be much appreciated. So with all of that said, we're going to continue our series in Micah, looking today at Micah chapter 2. In the book of Micah, we see a great deal of sin put on display. And we talked about that quite a bit last week. To sin is to ex exchange the ways of God for the ways of Rodney. That's what it looks like for me to sin. This is what it means also to rebel. I can only rebel 
against the command that has been given, and God has given us commands. And we saw in Micah chapter 1 that the people had no longer abided by the commands of God. I'll give you an example, maybe a parenting example. If I tell my child that they should not walk with their shoe untied, I warn them that they, if they choose to walk with their shoe untied, they can fall and hurt themselves. My child notices that their shoe is untied. In this moment, the child has a choice. They can accept the truth that I have given them. Though they have never fallen before, they can trust that I, as their father, have discernment as to the ways that are good and that my intention for them is ultimately good. Or they can reject the truth I have presented them by ignoring the command and continuing to play. In my house, the latter is a common occurrence. In this instance, they are not only being reckless and putting their health and safety at risk, but they have sinned in an even greater way in that they have sinned against me as their father. And the truth is, it does not matter what the outcome of the rebellion is. Okay, perhaps they fall and injure themselves, perhaps they do not. The sin is still of equal offense because they have exchanged my ways for their own, believing perhaps that their ways are better than mine or that maybe I don't know all that I think that I do. And this seems like a lighthearted, silly example, but it is rooted, make no mistake, in the very fall of humanity, where Adam and Eve made this decision on a grand scale, the decision to rebel against the command of God. It's the decision we still make today when we choose to act in ways that God has prohibited. Drunkenness is a sin regardless of whether or not it ends in a car crash that kills somebody. When we make a decision, when we exchange our ways for God's, we are guilty of rebellion and sin, and this was the case amongst the people here in Micah. If we are to be a church that is committed to embracing and preaching the whole of Scripture, and I assure you we are, then we cannot ignore the fact that God's response to this kind of rebellion is, in fact, anger and even wrath. This morning, I want to consider with you a question. Does God get angry? We talk regularly of God's grace and mercy um, around, around here, and well, we should and we always will. But we would not do justice to Scripture if we did not face the question, does God get angry? And so this morning, I want to read to you from Micah 2 once more. Jeff left off at the, verse, at the end of verse 5, and I'll pick up there. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walk uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who passed by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of uncleanliness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher to this people. I will surely gather all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like a sheep in a fold, like a flock in a pasture, a noisy multitude of men. We'll come back to 13. Reading this text here today, 
It seems incredibly clear that the answer to the question about whether or not God gets angry is that he certainly does. Consider the chapter that preceded this. Last week we read from Micah 1, and in Micah 1, verses 3 and 4, For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. Consider the weight, if you were here with us last week, of what was being said in those verses. God is declaring through the prophet that he was actually taking part in expanding the Assyrian Empire so that his righteous wrath would rain down judgment upon, in response to the rebellion of the people of Israel. God's saying, that's not outside of me, I'm not surprised by that, but God's literally taking part in that for his divine purposes. While no Christian can argue the reality of God's anger, there is a high probability that the anger of God might make you uncomfortable. I will confess in certain seasons of my life, and usually at the beginning of the year when my Bible plan starts out and I'm just in the depths of the Old Testament, there are times where I'm just I'm taken aback by the anger of God and I can find myself naturally uncomfort, uncomfortable with it. If we've determined the fact that God does get angry, then the question becomes, should we see God as angry? Should we identify him as so? And God himself addresses this very quandary in the verse we just read, verse 7. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walk uprightly? God says that in fact it is okay to identify him as, as such. These are his deeds. And when the anger of God, when that, even that sentence makes me uncomfortable, I would do well to ask the question of why. Anger makes us uncomfortable because for the human, anger is almost always associated with sin. Sinful anger manifests itself in two different ways. I'll use myself as an example. When I am angry, I'm often angry about things that I shouldn't be angry about. Perhaps I haven't had enough sleep, or I'm stressed about work that needs to be done at the end of the day, and I snap at my young child for making too much noise, as if children can do anything but make too much noise. This is not a just form of anger. My child has done nothing wrong. This anger is unjust, and it's reflective of my own sin. Perhaps I'm not only angry about things I should not be, but when I'm angry, oftentimes my anger, the human anger, produces sin. Perhaps I'm angry with someone in my church or at work. They posted something on their Facebook account. It offended me. Rather than speak to them directly, I avoid them, or I fail to show love to them. We call this being passive-aggressive. Or I'm angry with my spouse, and I speak to them in a way that is dishonorable. In these occasions, my sin has produced something that is unholy, and this is not a just form of anger. These associations with the term anger are deeply embedded in us because it is what is most common. When a human is angry, more times than not, it seems like it leads to sin. And for some of us, we have trauma that goes way back because we experienced unrighteous anger at a very young age. And it affects who we are and how we process today. Yet scripture tells us that not all forms of anger are like this. 
In Ephesians 4, 25 and 26, Paul says this to the church in Ephesus. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Paul assures the church that there are times when what you need to be motivated by is anger, but be angry and do not sin. So we see that there is a type of anger that is not sinful. It is an anger that is just. This anger is anger for the right reasons. It's anger about things that God is angry about. And this anger, when, in, when, when a just anger, reflective of God's anger, it's anger that does not lead me to sin. This anger, like God's, is born from love. It's anger that is produced in response to love. As I love something that is being wronged, I love something that is being distorted, and thus my response to love being warped is anger, which is what is happening here in Micah. Just anger, birthed from love, is the kind of anger we see displayed by God towards sin. It is not pointless anger, but it's anger intended to produce restoration and judge justice. The ultimate fruit of God's just anger, in fact, is the gospel. It's the truth that God so loved the world that he gave his only son to live a perfect life and to die a brutal death so that there would no longer be condemnation for those who are his, but everlasting joy in Christ Jesus. His anger towards sin is producing in us salvation. It's the, the gospel is the ultimate fruit of the righteous anger of God. His just anger towards sin is what led to the merciful cross upon which our hope is found. You see, God's anger is not cruel. It is never impulsive. But his wrath is just and right in a way and at a, on a level of standard that we cannot even comprehend. When we see God's anger towards sin, we also see his plan to defeat sin put on display. We see that the wrath of God ultimately leads to the glory of God being displayed perfectly in the kingdom that is to come. In Micah's day, as in Christ's, I believe that we see a particular um, just heart place, heart change perhaps, that led God to be justly angry. We see, when we look at this text and consider the background and consider where the God's people had been moving towards, that Israel and Judah had exchanged love for duty. They had grown weary of God's commands because their motivation to keep God's commands was no longer rooted in an actual love for God. At some point, they began to pull back from loving union with God and they operated out of a sense of religious obligation. I can imagine them saying things such as, I have to go all the way down to Jerusalem to give a sacrifice again? Like, that's a long way, and Katie's got soccer practice. Like, I just, I'm just tired. What, what am I doing this for? At some point, their motivation began to be questioned. The people of Judah and Israel and Joplin eventually find inevitably that religious duty can only last so long if it is not, in fact, motivated by a love for the Lord. Eventually, religious duty just isn't motivation enough to give up my time, talent, and treasure to give up my life. It's just not a worthy justification. 
I think we've experienced uh, as a country, maybe as a world, COVID brought this to the forefront in many ways. Um, I don't know if you've paid much attention to this, um, but the church has changed a great deal since COVID. Having a time period where it was socially acceptable not to gather with God's people led many people to realize they really weren't that big on that to begin with, that wearing pajama pants on Sunday morning was actually kind of cool and way more comfortable. Lifeway Research recently did a study on this, and they found this. This survey was conducted over the month of September, just this most recent September, and it included the responses of 1,000 Protestant pastors in the United States. This study revealed that about 98% of Protestant churches have reopened for in-person services, yet 13% of churches reported drawing less than 50% of their pre-COVID attendance numbers as of this past August. An additional 35% reported having 50 to 70% of their pre-COVID attendance, and another 30% reported attendance levels of 70 to 80%. About one in eight churches reported attendance levels that were close to 90% of pre-COVID, and only 9% said that as of August, their attendance levels exceeded their pre-pandemic level. Only 9%. I will say, just as a matter of praise be to God, by His grace, we were in that 9%, to all glory to Him and Him alone. But the summary is, that 78% of churches in the United States are below 90% of where they were before COVID. And to be close to that 90% is incredibly rare. The truth is, like Israel and Judah, American Christianity has been running on duty for some time. Like Judah and Israel, cultural injustice results when we begin as God's people to operate from a position of desiring to earn favor, that being our motivation for the way that we live, rather than walking faithfully in the favor that we have been shown by our loving God. Living in accordance with God's word so that the Father will love me is incredibly different than living in accordance with God's word because the Father loves me, because he first loved me. One is duty, trying to earn the favor of God. The other is grace-empowered gospel living that flows from the fact that God, in fact, loved me in the midst of my brokenness and sinfulness. We know this favor personally, because it has been manifest in Christ Jesus. But even the people of God here knew it through the grace of the covenant. When the people of God began to operate out of duty, the way they lived could no longer be differentiated from the ways of the world. We read this morning, Jeff read, uh, we see in verse 1, verse 1, woe to those who desire wickedness and work evil on their beds. Verse 1 tells us that these people had become consumed by worldly ways thinking about it even as they went to bed at night. This is not normal wickedness that is done in the shadow of darkness, but it's legalized wickedness. It's done in the daytime by those who have obtained power and made deals with the world. Verse 2 says, They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. They They coveted what others had, directly violating the command of God to not covet, And they took it from those who were less powerful than them. Their means of doing this was legal. But legal does not equal moral. 
God's law supersedes those of man. The Christian is to hold God's command over man's laws, but the people had found they had much to gain from man's law. In verse 8, But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. This says that great oppression was taking place amongst the people. Men were returning from war, and they were being stripped of their possessions by creditors with no repercussions. This was legal robbery that was taking place in plain view. And verse 9 says of those same, The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. And the wives, likely of those who were at war, were being evicted from their homes by the greedy who sought only their own gain. Society disregarded these women as well. That's just what happens. But God, it, it grieves him what's taking place amongst these people. I think if we're honest, some of these things probably sound familiar, that we, we tend to be caught up in these very, in, in the, the ways of the world that benefit us can often be easy to justify. In verse 6, explains part of the the reason for a big part of the motivation for this it says do not preach thus they preach one should not preach of such things disgrace will not overtake us as they committed these evil acts they were offended by micah's teaching the people wanted nothing to do with what micah was saying and they commanded him to stop preaching about these issues of justice Rather than consider the proclamation being made against them, they sought to have Micah silenced just like they did the prophets before him. And Micah mocks this posture in verse 11 when he says, If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. He's pointing out that the preacher they desire essentially is essentially one who preaches nothing but niceties. Just be positive. You're doing great. Be who you want to be. Don't intercede in anything that makes you uncomfortable. And whose doctrine is centered around beer and wine. He says he would be the preacher for this people. He would be a very popular person if he would preach niceties and make beer and wine his ultimate doctrine. Man, he would, that, that's, a great, that's a great plan for growing a big church. These verses, though, they depict grave injustices being done and people who claimed to be of God were right there in the thick of it, leading the way. The people of God felt their nationality was enough to save them. They lived like the world, and they offered God their meager religious duty scraps whenever they could work, muster up the strength to pull them together. And God hates it. He hated it. God does not want your obligatory religious acts. No, friend. He wants your whole heart, mind, and soul. He wants a relationship with you, not merely checking off boxes to earn a merit badge of grace. No, he loved you in advance while you were still in your brokenness, and he desires your full heart and relationship with the children whom he loves. The Lord's posture towards religious duty that is detached from love for him was spoken of through the prophet Amos years before when it says this in Amos 5, 21 through 27. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. 
and the peace offerings of your fattened animals. I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Our God is a God of justice. And thus, he desires us to be a people who care about and fight for that which is just here on the earth. However, where, the, where we tend to get this wrong and we can swing the other way is that justice is not born out of our ideas or ambitions. It's not a social media platform and it's not a hashtag. Biblical justice is rooted in the divine word of God that he has given us as our guide in all things. The ability to love and keep that word requires, though, that we love the Lord with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind. To love God is to love his word. And when we love the Lord, we can discern justice in that we have a heart that is God's first and foremost. We will not shy away from anything. We will not be the ones who preach of beer and wine, but we will be those who will cling to and hold to the difficult truths of God, for in Christ we have been given everything, and nothing that the world does can stand against us. We've been given a soul that is intertwined with the Lord's through the Holy Spirit, whom we are dependent on. We find our rest in Christ, and we walk daily with Him. He gives us eyes to see that which is true, that which is unjust. We don't need another blog or another book to figure that out. We've been given the book to figure it out and the Holy Spirit who allows us to see which is true. For we've also been given minds that understand the word of God through his power and his blessing. Not with our biases and our prejudices, but clearly through the gift of the Spirit who enlightens our minds to heavenly realities. The issue of justice is not merely an earthly reality, it's a heavenly reality. We're entering into spiritual things, and spiritual things require not our mere strength, but our mere dependence. I want to challenge you this morning. As we take part in the rhythms of the church, daily time in the Word, weekly participation in the sacraments, these are good and holy things that God has called us to. But all of this is empty if it is not birthed out of a love for God. Above all else, Christian, you need a heart that is fully alive in Jesus Christ. We are so busy with our day-to-day -day tasks that we must fight to devote ourselves to cultivating space and orienting our lives around our relationship with Jesus. You need a heart that is alive in Jesus more than you need anything else in this world, more than you need a roof over your heads, more than you need water to drink. You need a heart fully alive in Jesus. Yet so many things are prioritized above this. The urgency of the moment is not to be worshipped above the Savior who spoke that moment into existence. Instead, be satisfied in and marvel in Jesus Christ. For at the end of Micah 2, the prophet of God begins to reveal the point of this entire prophecy. I want to read verses 12 again along with 13. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. 
I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. And he who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through it and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. In the midst of this stern retribution, righteous anger on display, God declares his divine mercy and his plan for restoration. For the justice of God ultimately reveals his loving kindness. He says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. Though judgment was promised because of the great sin of God's people, they were still not beyond the grace and goodness of God. And he makes a point to make this clear, even in the midst of this harsh language. He still promised restoration to the remnant of Israel. The promise, the covenant had not changed. God's anger is righteous, but we are never too far removed from his mercy to be redeemed because God would send them a redeemer one, he said, is he who opens the breach. In the original language, this phrase could be used as a title. In fact, the King James Version says, the breaker, referencing Jesus Christ right here, who would come to break the gate of sin that kept the children of God from having access to the Father. Because Christ defeated sin, they would pass through the gate. It says their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Last week and this morning, we've considered the sin, of, the sin of man and the just wrath it evokes. Much of the prophets are used by God to declare this message of God's righteous wrath. This week, though, I began studying for next semester. Next semester, we're going to take January and we're going to preach through the sacraments. We're going to talk about elders and deacons, but we're also going to talk about baptism and communion. But then in February, we're going to camp out in Hebrews for quite a while. And I started reading Hebrews this week, setting aside commentaries, preparing for that. And I was struck by Hebrews 1 and what it tells us about even what we read today. I want to read you Hebrews 1, verse 1 through 7. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited that is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son? Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all of God's angels worship him. Back then, he spoke through the prophets. Here in the time of Micah, and the prophets were pointing the people to Jesus. But they only knew a sliver of what the Savior would be. The fathers of old were waiting but they knew that God was faithful. Make no mistake, God's wrath is revealed in Micah, and it is just and appropriate. We struggle to see it as appropriate only because we struggle to feel the weight of our own sin in light of his perfect holiness. Martin Lloyd-Jones speaks of this. He once wrote, 
you will never make yourself feel that you are a sinner because there is a mechanism in the human as a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. We are all on very good terms with ourselves. And we can always put up a good case for ourselves. Even if we try to make ourselves feel that we are sinners, we will never do it. There is only one way to know that we are sinners. And that is to have some dim, glimmering conception of God. When we look upon God and we see his just wrath, we may be certain that there is nothing worse than being separated from him. This cannot be overstated, and the Bible spares no punches in reiterating this truth over and over again. Yet Hebrews 1 reminds us that as much as we struggle to fathom wrath, we also do struggle to fathom the divine love and mercy of God that is revealed in Jesus Christ. Romans 5.20 tells us where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. As we close this week, I want to leave you with that. I want to ask you to consider and fathom the mercy of Jesus Christ and the the truth of that that is revealed even through reading of his wrath. Christian, the work of salvation, of your salvation, was completed when our great king bellowed out, it is finished. Christ was put to death for your offenses. Then he was raised for your justification. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He is our righteousness before God in heaven. Justification is once and for all permanent. Like the child with the untied shoe who ignores the father's warning and wrecks their bike, you have been injured by sin. God's church gathering is a place where we continue the ordinances that were put in place by Christ. We preach the word of truth as those long before us. We baptize and distribute communion all in the name of he who calls and sanctifies for himself a people called out of darkness and empowered to live as light in the midst of a broken world. Jesus delights in you, Christian. That your wrath is no, the wrath that was due was paid once and for all by Jesus Christ. And even here in Micah 2, when God is, well, God wants it to be very clear the brokenness of these people, He cannot help but remind them of the redemption that is coming because that's who He is. Because He is drawn, love and mercy is who He most naturally is, and it overflows from Him over and over again, and Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus is the perfect demonstration of the glory of God. It is who God is in fullness put on display. God is not angry with you because of Jesus, because if you are in him, despite the fact that you have been wounded by sin and that you struggle this day, you have exchanged your brokenness the brokenness displayed throughout Micah for the perfect righteousness of God, who is perfectly just but perfectly loving. And his perfect justice and love has been shown to us by the Savior for which we await. As they were waiting, so we are waiting still for him to come and make all things right and good. Would you join me this morning in praying that we might be a people who wait faithfully to that end? Lord, thank you. Um, Thank you for your mercy 
and goodness. Lord, we are a people fully deserving of your wrath. We are. We are quick uh, to question your ways and to elevate our ways. Our ways fail us over and over again. We have broken relationships. We have hurt others. Uh, We have put ourselves in deep holes uh, because of, of choices that we don't even remember anymore and have never acknowledged before you. Lord, we thank you that you knew this, you saw this, you're aware of this in us, and yet you have not ceased to show your loving kindness. That even as we we sit here today, perhaps angry, frustrated, perhaps even questioning our uh, could, could our could our, our sin be as bad as as, as it, the Bible declares it to be, even in the midst of our questioning, our stubbornness, maybe our pouting, you continue to be gracious and merciful. You continue to draw us to your side, and you will not let us go. We thank you, Lord. We thank you. We acknowledge um, that you are glorious, and that you alone are the means um, through which uh, we are made more like you we are not uh, we are not entrepreneurs Uh, we are farmers begging for rain Uh, and lord we acknowledge we are dependent on you to bring rain lord help us to faithfully uh, mend the fields of this life to plant seed to cultivate to show up day in and day out um, being faithful to the things you've called us to be faithful to and to care for but lord would we never cease to acknowledge that you are the source of all rain, that you are the source of all good fruit. We acknowledge this. We ask you uh, for your blessing this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.